on my TikTok feed is all these influencers and it's all over YouTube and stuff. So it's like, it's kind of creepy to just like find you eventually. Due to the boredom and also because of the stock market crash, a lot of people, they started to get into the share market. The more frequently you trade, the more likely you are to mistime the market and lose money. Hi there, I'm Helen Karakulak and you're listening to Leveraged, a series that explores finance in the digital age. With the help of financial counsellor Chanel McAuliffe, we're looking into finance trends, how they've affected real people, and why, when it comes to online finance content, it's not always what it seems. So I think we can agree that 2020 and 2021 have kind of blurred together into quite the roller coaster, the kind where, on the way down, you're convinced your stomach is never going to return to your body. For many of us, I know we're ready to hop off, leave the theme park and get a refund for our tickets. But there are some things, like a new interest in investing and a TikTok feed full of advice showing you how, that doesn't seem like it's going away anytime soon. Much like old mate COVID, it's just something we're learning to live with. In our last episode, we explored the buy now, pay later landscape and finished with Australian company Afterpay. Those that sort of saw the potential in the industry did very well out of the stock, but they were a minority voice for a long period of time. That was James Ayres, a journalist from the Australian Financial Review. Alongside journo Jonathan Shapiro, they wrote a book published in 2021 called Buy Now, Pay Later, The Extraordinary Story of Afterpay. In the book, they detail Afterpay's combative position on regulation, as well as how it divided opinion on the stock market. That's what we want to talk about in this episode the share market, and the ways investing looks different now. Lockdowns and the COVID pandemic have made this once-exclusive space occupied by older men in pinstripe suits suddenly seem more like a video game or gambling app. As a result of the pandemic first hitting, on March 16, 2020, the Australian market had its worst trading day since 1987. Basically, worried investors sold their stocks in a panic and the ASX plummeted 9.7%. That's roughly $160 billion. But on the bright side, this made stock values drop, making them more affordable for the average person. In the case of Afterpay, on March 23, 2020, just seven days after this trading doomsday, their shares were down to about $8 each. Comparatively, at their peak, one share was $151. Due to values coming down, paired with all that extra time at home, meant that social media became flooded with finance content, and new apps hoping to capitalise on getting those into investing in their new spare time kept popping up. Young people like myself are navigating a time of financial insecurity. Many of us are wondering whether we'll ever meet typical money milestones, like buying a house. For my friend Jordan, the stock market offers an enticing alternative to put your money in and grow your wealth. We're just in this massive property boom and it's so hard to get into the market. And I think investing money is another way to make it grow a bit more aggressively towards a housing deposit in the long term. The interest investing, I think, has come from I'm a first and family at university, so part of it for me is like wanting to secure my future and make sure I can set myself up for life. The interest in digital investing, I guess, has come through social media because it's just everywhere nowadays. Like on my TikTok feed is all these influencers and it's all over YouTube and stuff. So it's sort of amalgamated together. Do you seek out that kind of content on TikTok and YouTube or did you find that with TikTok particularly because of the way their algorithm works on their For You page, it was just something that kind of came up naturally? It's like it's kind of creepy to just like find you eventually. It's something I tend to avoid TikTok actually because I don't think it's very sound advice. I used to watch a couple of YouTubers, but even then I've grown not skeptical. But I think you got to be careful where you get this information from. In the past, I've watched a lot of 
a YouTuber called New Money. His videos are quite decent, but that's about it. I usually like, I'll research the apps and the affiliations they have with them, but I think I'm an outlier in that area. I think a lot of people would just click into these apps without like looking into them further. Angel Zhang is a senior lecturer in finance at RMIT. After speaking to her, I can confirm that Jordan is not the only self-taught investor drawn in from social media. Angel explained to us that when the pandemic hit, she saw a big spike in interest from those wanting to learn about the stock market and start to invest. Last year, when the lockdown started, so I started to receive a lot of calls from friends that who I haven't spoken to in like the last 10 years, and they said hello to me. Um, then they started to ask for investment advice. Because last year, due to COVID lockdown, due to the boredom, and also because of the stock market crash, a lot of people, they started to get into the share market. For example, half a million of Australians participated in the share market for the first time in COVID-19. So through my conversation with those friends, <laughs> they've also told me that they've been following a lot of social media channels about investment because they don't have much finance background. So there's certainly demand for some of this social content. Jordan, how did you get started investing, considering your mistrust of some online sources? I've only started this year and I've been putting like $50 a week in, which I'm very fortunate to be able to do in my position as a student. And I know not everyone can do that. So even a little bit is fine. The minimum parcel is $500. Okay. That's the minimum you can invest in the stock market at once. Mm -hmm. But the past like year before that, I was doing a lot of research and reading books, like simple stuff like investing for dummies, personal finance for dummies. I get them at service for $5 and they're great. And then putting my money in and making sure it's a safe investment. Seems to me like Jordan gets a tick in Angel's book so far. You do not invest because others are doing so. You invest because you understand the dynamics and the fundamentals of whatever you are buying. This is a good rule and one that stopped our friend Ali from investing. Like many women, she's reluctant to take the plunge, something Angel sees often. There is a gender gap in financial literacy. We have like a 10% gender gap in terms of the financial literacy to men and female investors. Going forward, if we don't equip Australians with good financial literacy education, um, then they will become very vulnerable and it will create a lot of market volatility. Ali wants to be financially independent, but struggles with the basic concepts of investing and the stock market. Do you invest? No, I don't think I have the education and the knowledge to properly invest. I find it really interesting, though, about how the stock market and how investments work. But I would need someone to sit down through me and teach me, sit down through me, sit down <laughs> with me and teach me how to invest properly rather than me just putting my money into some random stocks and not knowing how to manage that and not knowing how to follow and when's a good time to buy out or when's a good time to invest as well. Alex Nikolic is known on Instagram at, at @brokegirlwealth, with an impressive 14.4 thousand followers. The 26-year-old lawyer says this is an attitude she sees quite often. My followers, people that follow me online, have kind of shared this view. And I'm really keen to hear, Helen, if you feel this way. But sometimes there's this feeling that you have to know everything before you get into it. I, I don't know if you have put off investing until you felt like you'd sort of mastered it. Definitely. Investing can seem really overwhelming and I don't want to put my money into something if I'm not confident. The gendered element of this is also reflected in the social media content being created by people like Alex, as the finance content space on Instagram has become dominated by women. 
was really craving content that was about Australians. I was craving content that was written by women for women, not necessarily like for women that I only talk about women's issues, but content that kind of considered things like maternity leave, superannuation, getting divorced, having kids, like all of that sort of stuff. I think the research also suggests that women are better investors, just that in line with a slightly lower risk tolerance and less likelihood to buy and sell. They're much more long-term in their thinking when they do invest. They actually outperform their male peers by a couple of percentage points. One area of Angel's research is retail investors. A retail investor is an individual or non-professional investor who holds shares, often with a focus on building their wealth, like Jordan, or planning for retirement. We spoke to Summer Taylor, who is a senior manager at ASIC Retail Complex Products and Investor Protection, which looks at market conduct and market supervision. Summer confirmed for us that retail investor participation in the market has increased. It now accounts for about 15 to 17% of ASX trading, compared to what was about 10% pre-COVID. I think it's really encouraging. We're seeing a lot more retail investors take an interest in their financial future, and that's terrific. It's also good for markets with more and varied sources of liquidity. But we are actively monitoring these trends and developments, and we are very much considering what they mean for retail investors and market integrity. And so we do have some concerns. So, for example, we would be worried that retail investors may be taking excessive risks or investing more than they can afford to lose. There's been motivation from boredom and and limited access to spend money or be entertained. So people have been motivated to break into the mainstream trading space since COVID, but there are also all of these different ways to invest digitally that have started popping up. Since researching this podcast, my targeted advertisements have been full of them, and it's even started spilling into the real world ads too. My friend and fellow UniSA student Cassie Taylor started micro-investing, and over a coffee she told me how it all works. I was driving home the other day and I noticed there was an advertisement for a spaceship at a bus stop. So like a physical ad, the same way you might see like Macca's ads or Hungry Jack's ads or whatever else is advertised on bus benches these days. It was an ad for this app. And I thought, oh, that's weird. It just felt like almost like breaking the fourth wall, like of the real world. Like I'm like, no, you exist online. I see ads for you on Twitter. Like it felt wrong seeing it at a bus stop. Yeah, and it's one of those things as cash is slowly becoming like more and more obsolete, a lot of people are turning to this micro-investing instead as a modern day kind of solution to just a piggy bank or a savings account. It feels a lot more dynamic. With micro-investing apps, not only can you save up your change, but you can invest it into different portfolios. So the way that it works is that micro-investing is about making small and irregular investments, usually from everyday transactions. So these apps round up your purchases to invest your spare change. So for example, if you bought a cappuccino at the cafe down the hallway, that $4.50 will be rounded up to $5 and the 50 cents would then be invested. So depending on how frequently you use that transaction and how the market treats you with your portfolio, over time you could actually build like a pretty sizable nest egg that you wouldn't normally through a savings account. So it's been really interesting to see just why people are flocking to micro-investing. Another selling point of these apps is how easy they are to use, with fun colours, simple iconography, and the ability to navigate your portfolio like you would a video game. Summer says this gamification is something ASIC has been looking into, along with its potential harm. We do want people to be aware that it has never been easier to buy shares. 
but that academic research has really shown that the more frequently you trade, the more likely you are to mistime the market and lose money. So what Simon means by this is that research shows to buy and hold on to your shares is the best long-term strategy. But these new apps want you to do the exact opposite and trade lots in the simplest amount of steps. So there are some real risks here that I think it's really important that the people look out for. And remember, companies are spending an awful lot of money to develop easy-to-use apps to minimise those number of clicks that you need to buy or sell securities. And also in the backs of our minds, we have to try and remember that the person who is maybe recommending a product to you is potentially being paid by the product promoter and they may not have your interests or best interests at heart. So there's a range of things we'd suggest for you to look out for as we do see that these approaches, I guess, are being used to target young people. Alex agrees that to buy and hold is the best strategy and has seen apps and influencers at work that encourage the opposite. Holding long-term is really where the wealth growth happens and people that trade, there's very few people that trade and what I mean by trade is buy and sell frequently their stocks. There's very few people that trade that actually make money. A lot of people just lose money. And with that being said, there's apps that, for example, apps like eToro encourage buying and selling. So the newsletters they put out, the way the app is structured, a lot of the nudges are towards you making a panic buying decision or triggering a sale really, really quickly. Now, there's apps that take a different approach that build with the intention of you holding your money in there and investing it for as long as possible because that's really where the growth is. Those results that you get from short-term, I call it flipping of stocks. If you see videos of people, oh, I made $20,000 you know, overnight, I always look on those with caution because what they don't tell you is how much money they've lost. Given her large Instagram following, she's often approached by a variety of apps and products requesting promotion or partnership deals. Alex says she doesn't affiliate with anything she doesn't actually use herself. And she's careful when it comes to advertising, even when it comes to bigger players. When I do choose affiliates, it's always intentional. I've worked with Perla, a brokerage platform, for a really long time. But their whole product design and investing ethos is get rich slow, like it's on their landing page. I got contacted by a very, very big customer to do a buy now, pay later ad. And while I, again, I cast no judgment on anyone that's used buy now, pay later, I think, you know, you can make your own decisions about your finances. I didn't feel that was appropriate to nudge people towards because I think debt's a really sensitive subject. So I do, I really have a vetting process. And again, I only advertise what I use myself. So while Alex tries to be responsible and look into what she's promoting, our financial counsellor Chanel has found that a lot of these dodgy apps have other financial influencers promoting them. And there are elements of this that you find particularly dangerous. Right, Chanel? Yeah, so some of the approaches taken by these apps include distributing affiliate links and promoting posts on social media with incentives. Some of these influencers lend to advertise investment products the same way a regular influencer might advertise a skincare brand or another product relevant to their audience. The micro-investing Cassie mentioned earlier can be done on a variety of platforms, with one of the most popular in Australia being Raise. These apps often let you start with a small amount, like just $5, and they even have setups where you can receive cash rewards invested back into your account each time you shop online with certain brands. Raise seems to be more legit than others, with this cashback promotion resembling other products like Shopback and Cash Rewards, which have become quite popular in Australia recently. 
Other apps and brands offer similar incentives, with some even offering to match your purchase, such as an additional $10 worth of cryptocurrency for free if you spend $10, or they have offers where you can invest $5 to get $5. Some of these incentives have similarities to bonus bets and account perks the gambling industry used in their marketing. This type of marketing was then banned under Australian law from May 26, 2019. So with these promotional techniques, the fact that investing is easier than ever and full of high-risk opportunities, there's a very real possibility that digital investing can become an addiction. Angel found that due to COVID restrictions causing other gambling avenues to close, for some, share markets have become a substitute. Summer says this is something ASIC is watching closely. We're undertaking research to develop insights into retail investor motivations and drivers and the products they invest in, the platforms they use, for example, their information sources that they use to make investment decisions, and very importantly, their approach to risk. So, for example, we're engaging with Dr. Angel Zong from RMIT. Her work is very well known for looking at the correlation between the surge in retail trading and gambling revenue. And that, that's of great interest to us. And then we're taking all of this information and data and research and using that to connect the dots to understand the most severe harms, where they might be, who might be affected, to then inform how we can best address them. Remember the boxing metaphor that we used in episode one to illustrate this ongoing battle between regulation and innovation? I think this is a good time to revisit it. So we know ASIC is researching and considering how to best move forward with their own regulation. For a bit more clarity here, I asked Summer if she thinks it's likely that we will see increased regulation in the area of digital investment platforms and how existing investment apps are currently considered by ASIC. She explained there are a couple of categories these apps could be considered under. I think it's worth noting with your question here that these products are relatively new to the Australian market. So they're currently being considered by a number of different teams within ASIC, not just in the markets group, one of which is whether these products constitute a registrable managed investment scheme. What ASIC is grappling with is whether these investment apps are managed funds or simply a trading platform. While we do engage with issuers of innovative financial products on the appropriate licensing of those products, it's ultimately the responsibility of the product issuer to make sure that their business and product offerings do comply with the law. So basically, you're on your own. ASIC will occasionally look at these products, but has pushed the responsibility for complying with the law back onto those who create the apps. It's buyer beware. The same seems to be the case with the financial influencers peddling these dodgier products, which Angel explains is a grey area. It's a really a gray area because if you look at, for example, ASIC's regulatory guidance about online comments about investing, it actually dated back to 2007. <laughs> but we all know that internet back in 2007, so different from what we have today. We didn't have TikTok, we didn't have Facebook. At that time, I can't remember. We did have Facebook in 2007. In fact, there were 30 million registered Facebook users. This was when Facebook was still about poking people and enhancing features like giving gifts to friends and posting free classified ads. But things sure did look different in 2007. The first iPhone was released by Apple, Barack Obama was running for US president, the Nintendo Wii was the most in-demand game system, 
And ironically, my career was on a pathway towards stockbroking. I was eight years old. So like Angel said, things are very different today than they were in 2007, and it's probably time to update those guidelines. As a journalist at the Financial Review, covering fintech, among other things, James Ayres has seen that we're living in an app economy. Whether it be your simple online banking, the snazzing new money by Afterpay, which we looked at in our first episode, or digital investing. Everyone is, is chasing the same thing, which is being one of the main apps that a user opens on their phone. On the main screen of the phone, you want to do something in finance. Do you push the Commonwealth Bank app or your banking app? Or do you push another app? And might that be Afterpay? And that's where you do all of your financial stuff. You manage your budget, do your spending, do your buy now, pay later, do your spending on groceries, have your investments, have your crypto wallet. Summer says the convenience of accessing an app on your phone is a key element in the similarities being drawn between betting and investing. I think that's interesting in itself that we now have a situation that people are trading, you know, using a device that they might already be on on a lot of the time. I think there's also some really interesting things going on with interface design so that in some circumstances we may see a resemblance between online betting platforms that are very user-friendly, very easy and game-like. And they're marketed to entry-level investors so and marketed on social media. So they're using incentives to increase trading activities, such as $10 credits if you open an account as part of their grow promotion, offering free shares drawn from a lottery at random, regular notifications to very much to make it stay front of mind. Dr. Angel Zong, who I mentioned earlier from RMIT, has been researching the links between trading and gambling and noted that the increase in trading volume was very much more pronounced in those countries with higher pre-COVID gambling rates. And guess what? Australia was ranked as the number one gambling country in her analysis. Okay, so we know investing is easier than ever in our app economy, but it's worth mentioning that despite this ease of access, investing can still seem complex and off-putting. And for some, they're not as prominent on their feats. Ali is still cautious about the amount of research a safe investment would require. If you looked at any of these apps that are now gaining popularity, like Spaceship and Raze and stuff like that, is that something that you've been like, oh, I want to see what that's about and it's not for me? Or like you want to wait until you have time to actually do your research before you start investing your money? I have never heard of those apps. but Oh, really? Yeah. My boyfriend's quite investment savvy. He knows all about it and he's into fintech stuff as well. So I kind of get a lot of my information from him when he's talking about his stuff, which I find really interesting because he speaks about it in another 22-year-old way, not some like 22-year-old acting like they're 30 and have been investing for years. But it was something that I'd like to look to in the future because I know a lot of people, you can make some decent in choices and investments with that stuff, which would be cool. And I think it's good to have knowledge about that stuff anyway, especially in today's day and age. I'm with Ali. I don't invest in the ASX. I don't micro-invest. I'd like to eventually, but the actual investing itself is still tricky for me to wrap my head around. So I'm going to need a little help here, especially when it comes to these extra techie investments like crypto. Jordan, we've got quite a bit in common. What advice do you have for me to get started? Is crypto the way of the future? 
Firstly, don't invest in anything you don't understand. So for me personally, that's cryptocurrencies. I do have some cryptocurrencies from back in like 2017. All these guys at work were saying, buy this, buy this. So I did, unfortunately. So they're still sitting in my crypto account, but I view them as a gamble, not an investment because I don't understand that technology. Bugger. Chanel, can you give me a crash course in crypto? Is it something you come across very often in your capacity as a financial counsellor? Sure. So cryptocurrency is like the internet's money, right? It's a virtual currency that can't be counterfeited or interfered with by governments. Most students that I see who have crypto got into it out of curiosity. They don't put their life savings into it, but they are interested to see where it could go. The technology that essentially allows crypto to work, known as blockchains, are secure and decentralized. For fans of crypto, they think it's great because it's private, but concerns have been raised regarding the technology's potential for illegal activity. So among retail traders, particularly those that are engrossed in crypto, I imagine it would be quite easy to get drawn into the hype. But do you think they're always realistic about investing and considering that potential for harm? Well, like I said before, I've seen a lot of students get into crypto out of curiosity, but you should definitely consider the harm factor because crypto has also been popping up more and more in investor scams. So according to Scamwatch, investment scams have seen Australians lose over $70 million in the first half of 2021. And they project the losses are set to reach $140 million by the end of the year. Of these $70 million worth of losses more than half were to cryptocurrency scams, which were the most commonly reported type of investment scam. Oh, wow. Well, it makes sense that it's on ASIC's radar then. Summer says there's some easy ways to be cautious of crypto. Scammers quite often imitating established company names to solicit funds. We'd encourage people to think about the fact that higher returns often means higher risk. And obviously in a very low interest environment in which we find ourselves in, If the yield that is being promised is high, this really may be a red flag. So be aware that that investment scams are everywhere. You can do some quick, easy things like checking the account name you're depositing the funds into matches the entity. And you can also do your own internet searches to check the legitimate website details match. And they're just very simple steps that people can do to protect themselves. With a barrage of investment apps filling my feeds and even bus stop benches near me, warnings of addictions and scams, I can't say I'm overly excited to start investing. Investing can be quite a powerful tool if you learn how to use it properly and there's a lot of potential in it, but at the same time you need to be, I guess, realise grateful that you're in a position that you can invest. You know, we're in one of the richest countries. I Actually, I was thinking the other day, like, my grandma lived through the Great Depression and World War II and has really struggled and then here's me in the middle of a pandemic deciding which $10 bag of coffee to buy and investing in my spare time. I think just be grateful and realise how lucky you are if you can invest. I love the sentiment of gratitude here, and I think it's a really important one, because even though access to investing has widened with the development of all of these apps and in the wake of the COVID crash, it's still a privileged position to have disposable income to invest without fear. We've covered a few different elements of investing in this episode, and I appreciate that it can be tricky to follow. So thank you so much for listening this far. There are a few notable elements we haven't touched on yet, and that's market integrity involving pump and dump schemes, and more on this ethical grey area of sharing financial advice online. We'll look at this next time on Leveraged. So something that these Finfluencers do that is wild 
is that they post their net worth. Like, that's a trend. They're like, calculating my net worth. I'm 26 and Where do you get that money from, though? Your parents? It is really like a grey area because, for example, in Australia, you need a licence to give financial advice. And giving financial advice without a licence, you will be subject to fines. And we need to bear in mind this is illegal market manipulation and it can attract a fine of over a million dollars and up to 15 years imprisonment. So it's really serious. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leveraged. Leveraged is brought to you by the University of South Australia Student Association. If you liked this episode, rate us and write a review. You can engage with us on Instagram at USASA Adelaide. This episode was researched by Helen Karakulak and Chanel McAuliffe. We were assisted by Cassie Taylor and Michelle Wakim. It was mixed and edited by Shay Mosh of Podcast Services Australia. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Ghana people, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. We also acknowledge the country that you are listening from and its connection with traditional custodians.